Hey folks, thanks for sticking around this long through all the noise and all the other weird stuff we've been doing. We're kind of still stuck in lockdown, you may have noticed, because we're all doing this remotely. Although I'm hoping we can see each other soon, but who knows. Um, but even if we do get to see each other soon, we still have a bit of a problem. Um, furlough's really kicking our ass, so anything you guys can do to help us um, lighten the load a little bit for paying for this whole thing would be much appreciated. Yeah, professionally speaking, it's kicking our ass. Yeah. Uh, the podcast itself is doing okay. Thank you very much to everyone who has already donated. We would super appreciate that. But yeah, if we can lighten the load on particularly these two guys, that would be really lovely. Um, so go to patreon.com forward slash unsungpod. Check out our tiers. Uh, you can see some cool things we have on offer. And you'll also get access to the episodes a, week, uh, a few days early and bonus content as well. Mm-hmm. And again, the bonus materials that come with the higher subscription bands, they may have taken a little while to arrive, but they are seriously worth it. I can't wait to release the t-shirts. Awesome. <laughs> the t-shirts are going <laughs> to... They're going to be a viral hit. <laughs> so yeah, unsungpod.net slash donate or uh, patreon.com for slash unsungpod. Both of those URLs will take you to the right place. Uh, and choose your tier. You can start from as little as $2 a month, which is, come on, like right now, given the exchange rate, that's probably like 50p. <laughs> so go, go do it. Thanks. That bottle of wine you've got there, Chris. Are you tanning a bottle of wine from the bottle? Tanning a bottle of wine? No, it's a bottle of Australia. All right, Uh, fair enough. It's only a normal sized bottle as well. How big do you think my head is? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's just. Once again, we are we're still remote from each other, as I said, about 35 seconds ago. Hey, wait, I um, mean, even at the best of times, we've almost always been at two metre distance when recording anyway. It's to get some true. audio separation. I suppose. Uh, how are you guys doing? How's your weeks been? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty positive. We're about to make it big because we're... Pro- I mean, first it's Joe Rogan, and then it's us. It's going to get snapped <laughs> up by Spotify for 100 million bucks. <laughs> yeah, I'm buzzing for the, the podcast boom. <laughs> It's going to be excellent. You know, I've seen a lot of few people saying that you should have just went down the subscription route himself, but I was thinking, like, that totally misses the point. Now he doesn't have to do any work at yeah, all. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's going to be... I, I hate to see so much of the alt-right drain away from YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get dragged back to the centre. <laughs> uh, I spent... Uh, I'm OK, but I did spend a fair amount of this week getting I think slightly unfairly getting my 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 boss felt or my ass kicked I mean boss felt can be a bad thing in Scotland but it might be a good thing everywhere else um <laughs> for our last episode uh getting some heavy pelters for the many 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 artists we didn't feature in an episode <laughs> that we threw together with about six hours notice <laughs> during yeah. a pandemic when one of our members had to take his fiance to hospital it's we just have a disgrace the work ethic is <laughs> have, really shoddy we have a somewhat unforgiving <laughs> clientele <laughs> but yes as it happens uh, we did omit a number of people from that. Uh, who were some of the ones? Joni Mitchell. That was that was thrown in my face. Um, I mean, uh, there were so many. There were there, and, and yeah, okay. Even the Scottish ones. Yeah, we didn't name Frightened Rabbit and all those kind of things. But we had very little time and limited bandwidth. Um, 
So I think what we need to now promise to do is we will, especially with David on board, we will do a Troubadour follow-up episode at some point in the not-too-distant future. And the, the mission is to not name or at least not go into any detail on any of the artists mentioned in the first Troubadour episode. <laughs> Purely to sate the, the appetite for violence that seems to exist within <laughs> the commentators uh, that we have attracted to our podcast. So David, you've got that to look forward to. I'm sure you have loads of names to add. You can't say Catherine Joseph because we did put that in there. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, there's there's a few. There's a few. We'll get on it. Um, but yeah, it's, other than I think the, it's remarkable. Other than those pelters, it's been a fairly amiable week. David? Well, I guess this week is uh, sort of shines out in my calendar because I would have been getting married on Saturday. Yeah. Um, More to the point, David, this week shines out in me and Mark's calendar because we would have been getting drunk on Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So would I. (laughs) Fucking hell. Um, But alas, yeah global situation has delayed it by well we found a date next year next october i feel like we might be able to have 200 people in a room by next october so you and you and faith no more well yeah exactly <laughs> i know they're actually they're actually playing for us they're the wedding band so um you know the busiest show i had three wedding invitations in on the horizon and that's two of them yourselves included now postponed so i'm waiting to see if the third falls or if they're they're able to like press ahead yeah, yeah, commiserations, man. But it, it'll happen. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, marriage is for life. So yeah, you just you just have to months. hope that you can keep your real self under wraps just a little bit longer. I know. <laughs> I've got to hide, still hide my flaws for even longer. Jesus. Yeah, I, I've been invited. I've got a wedding in November, which I'm hoping we'll still go ahead as my cousin. Um, but fuck knows. I've got a birthday in November, which I'm hoping doesn't go ahead because I'll be turning <laughs> forty. <laughs> Holy shit! With that baby face, unbelievable. I know it's mental. Eh? Now that my hair's grown out into this weird River Phoenix 1990s mullet, as well. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I put it's on good. a check shirt just to accentuate it. Just don't die in a nightclub on your forty birthday. Kind of actually, that was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Go out as I came in. Yeah, oh, I my mum my my denies week. that. Though my mum denies that, but I've got my suspicions because the, <laughs> the the only way you're getting on with my dad is if it's really dark and you're really drunk. It's a fifty fifty <laughs> chance in Sterling anyway. That's where you were born. So yeah. Well, uh, actually, I think my mum and dad hooked up in Glasgow. Mum's from Hamilton. Dad's from Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Stir- you know that Sterling has a notoriously high incest problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not making this up. I used to work in the, the local authority there, and it, it does legitimately have a really big problem with inbreeding. And I'm from Stirling, so I'm painting myself with this brush. Uh, but part of that is attributed to the fact that there's a big kind of there's quite a large amount of people in the wider area, and there's only really two big nightclubs to speak of, and there are a lot of accidental. Uh, <laughs> incestual uh, relations that happen with like estranged fathers hooking up with younger girls and they don't know who they are and all that kind of thing. This is not a word of a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a big issue through there. <laughs> well, I mean, don't worry. I'm from the Highlands, so you know, <laughs> it's just generally unsaid. <laughs> Wait till you guys get your first nightclub. <laughs> I know. Well, it'll be some buzz. 
Anyway, I fell off my bike this week. I was sitting a day before we started. I was going down an actual cycle lane, and some guy uh, was about to cut me up, and it was wet, and I fell off it, and I've fucked, I've fucked my knee up pretty badly. So, the, you know, it's been a pretty interesting weekend for me. I'm pretty sure that was probably karma in the post from my dad, who spent most of this week raging about cyclists <laughs> being in the pavements when he's trying to socially distance. So he's probably hexed you. I was in the cycle lane, so you know. <laughs> I don't have cycle lanes in Sterling. <laughs> we just got we just got paths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Mark, uh, what record are we doing? So this week we're doing Donuts by Jay Dilla. Play me, buy me. Which is um, his third album and final non-posthumous release. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beautifully put. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it is. As it turns out, it's a lot more influential than I thought it was, and he's a lot more influential than I, than I knew he was, or already knew he was quite an influential artist. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert here. I mean, I am going to walk a very careful line on this episode, but I was astounded by. The, the legacy of this album and also just the backstory and stuff so it's been a really interesting episode which I, I have to admit I came at a little bit half-heartedly and I'm, I'm also kind of glad that we, we got postponed by a week because I did get a lot more into the, the backstory even just in the, the extra seven days that I had to, to watch if, there's a lot of documentaries about this a lot of documentaries yeah. if, you, if you go on YouTube uh, especially there there's a lack of Joe Rogan but there are at least six Jay Dilla uh, and Donut uh, many documentaries that are really informative. Um, yeah, but I mean, we'll cover that a little bit. Um, we'll cover everything that he's done. Um, but so, Chris, just kind of going by what you said, I suppose you hadn't really heard of him or his stuff before. Uh, not entirely. Uh, I kind of one of my bandmates, a mutual friend of me, David uh, David Warner, who I think I've mentioned this show about half a dozen times now, because Dave's got a great taste in music and I owe him for a, a good few artists. Uh, but We'd put a couple of compilations together via the band, as you do, and he'd dropped a couple of tracks off of Donuts onto those compilations, and I didn't really know what they were. Uh, I didn't really know much about it. It was only in, in, in retrospect when you put it forward for this that I kind of made further inquiries. It, it didn't really have any real significance to me, but clearly now it makes a lot more sense. And Dave, I'm uh, like record. I think I was very aware of J. Dillard's Influence. I mean, I think like I got into hip hop about I don't know, like ten years ago or so, and ever since, it's very hard to to read any interview by any rapper without them <laughs> sort of name dropping uh, Jay Dilla and even name dropping Donuts as well. I had I'd given the record a wee shot a few years ago. And I enjoyed it, but it never quite stuck. But uh, yeah, um, so this was like the first time I spent a long time with it. Can I can I say one of the things about it? I mean, I try to get into these things, and one of the things about it that certainly at like first blush made me really struggle is that because the tracks in it are so short, but there are so many, I I didn't really have the time to acclimatize to any one song. I think there's only one tune over like two minutes or something like that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think. That was a bit of a barrier to me. Just coming from the musical background, I am. I like to get into a groove or something. And this is, we'll obviously talk about the nature of it. But I th- it, it, even if there were tunes that were starting to really click, they were over just as they were starting to click. And I think that's that's a wee bit an obstacle for me. 
Yeah, so it kind of stands in stark contrast to what a lot of hip-hop artists and producers tend to do anyway. You know, having songs that are less than two minutes is just really not the norm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the record that def- that we've done previously that is as close to this as possible is uh, introducing by DJ Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see that they, I mean, in many ways they work very similarly in terms of uh, samples, but in terms of the overall structure of the record, like they couldn't be more different. Uh, you know, DJ Shadow does six, seven, eight minutes songs. Um, a lot of his stuff you could even say has a sort of like post rock sort of vibe to it. Whereas this is much more of a mixtape vibe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this is he did a lot of beat tapes. You know, people used to like feverishly await the the, the sort of the next J Dilla beat tape, so they could start chopping stuff together and turn it into tracks. And this was close. This was on the verge of being a beat tape. Certainly, some some of his friends when they first heard it thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I believe I believe the original cut of this was only about twenty odd minutes long. It was somebody I forget the guy's name, Jeff, somebody who uh, like helped develop it into the kind of fuller length album from the stuff that was there. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, he, he, the the beat tape thing was uh, sort of very distinct to that era of hip hop, wasn't it? So people just uh, producers just slamming together these kind of like little mini ideas and then just sort of putting them out there for rappers and MCs to go and to go and work on and develop into bigger tracks. And this kind of has a bit of that feel to it, but then clearly goes well beyond that once you actually start digging. Yeah, so let's, I suppose it's probably good to give you a little bit of history of the guy. Um, he'd actually, I was really surprised at how much he'd achieved in his unfortunately short life. He, he was born in Detroit in 1974. James DeWitt Yancey is his name. <laughs> um, born to musical parents, uh, Mom uh, Maud Dukes or Maureen Yancey, who's his mum, who's also the executor of his estate now, and his dad, Beverly. Um, she was a, an opera singer. Or he's yeah, she was an jazz, opera singer and he was a jazz bass player. Jazz he used bassist, to play, yeah. yeah, he used to play at the halftime shows for the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> um, and apparently his mum and dad had a acapella jazz group as well and they used to always take together at home um, and his mum often claims he had pitch perfect harmony from a very young age mm-hmm. um, one cool story that I read was that um, when he was two years old his mum bought, bought him a Fisher Price record player and she'd just keep buying him records and the first record he ever got was a soundtrack to The Woods by Michael Jackson <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Um, when he was in school, he used to play the cello, which is also really interesting. Um, as mum says, it's like the least ghetto instrument you could possibly study. <laughs> and that's, that's probably true. Imagine carrying <laughs> that through the ghetto. Yeah, I, yeah know, I, I, I used to play cello when I was in primary school and I truly, it went against my gangster vibes. <laughs> you, you seem more a, a trumpet player. I don't know what that means, but thanks. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't explain it. You just got more of a trumpet vibe. Uh, well, I'll take it. I'll take it. 
So when I got to high school, I started getting into hip-hop in a really big way. Um, I started a group called H2O with uh, a guy called T3 and a guy called Batten, who would then later go on to change the name to Slum Village. Um, he heard a song called Big Mouth by an artist. Did that record, uh, did that act not also start uh, go under the name First Down? That's a, that was a slightly different act, but yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, well, cause he went, we'll cover that in a second, but he went back to Slum Village after that fell apart. Um, it was actually a track called Big Mouth by the artist Houdini who kind of got him into making beats of his own. Um, or got him into the idea of making beats and then soon after when H2 started performing he started to make friends with all, all the people in the Detroit scene a huge influence on him was a guy called Amp Fiddler um, who kind of taught him how to well, he says he taught him how to program beats and how to use drum machines and stuff but that's not really the case he would go to his studio and then he would show them, he would show them how it works and then say go and figure it out for yourself don't, re- don't look at the books he was a keys um, player in parliament wasn't he? yeah and yeah. he was like he was just said like I'm not going to show you how to do it. You need to work it out for yourself. Don't read any books. And he took out a philosophy for the rest of his life and everybody's working with any yeah. music. Including with the MPC uh, 3000 where you didn't read the the instruction manual, apparently. Yeah, which is, which is mental. Um, but I guess that... He was entirely self-taught and everything. The guy could play guitar and, 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 and keys and drums and everything as well. Um, that was a big part of what it was. Is Not only did they end up having like an encyclopedic knowledge of music, but if he needed a sound and he couldn't find it on a record... Of which he had thousands, and um, he would just go and play it himself. Can I um, just I uh, can I interject just an interesting thing for we stray as well? Just during that part of his story, there was a little segue into the story of instruction manuals of like early nineties and late eighties sort of electronic equipment. And there's actually like a total craft to it. Like they were actually written quite uh, affectionately in a lot of cases, like the, the instruction manual for the MPC 3000 the, the inventor, or one of the inventors uh, has a, a big bit at the end of it where he's like, I want you to think about this in the same way as people thought about the piano when it was first invented, I want you to think about this in the same way as people thought about the first time they strung strings over a bit of hollow wood and all that. He, like, he gets really quite Profound in his uh, the closing part of this uh, instruction manual, and he, you know, and then he does obviously encourage people to go out and develop and and explore the limitations and the, the the possibilities of this this instrument, but not to just regard it as a as a as a bit of kit, like to see it as a whole new future of music and stuff. It's like it's quite interesting. Uh, obviously, he never read it though. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's interesting that like that would be said in the manual because. A lot of hip hop producers like use it as a tool, whereas he actually played it, mm. and you know that that's kind of one of the things which makes his beat making so unique is his his refusal to quantize things. You know, like mm. he's actually playing it as an instrument as opposed to just programming it in and putting it on putting it on the beat or whatever. You know, yeah, he was also incredibly familiar just with the kind of. The, the deeper level working of these these devices. I mean, I, I use some of these things, and I'll be honest, you almost never need to even go beyond the second tier to get most of the kind of everyday functions out of them. But there are some people, well, obviously the developers, some of the YouTube channels and stuff, but some really passionate musicians that go right into the deep possibilities of some of these bits of kit, and they're they're incredible bits of equipment, but so few people really take the time the way Jay Dilla did to explore deep into that machine and work out what it can actually do and all the potential that it has. So that's a very admirable thing that he did. He really mastered it. 
As he was getting to terms with, with becoming a master of that, he did. He was part of that group mentioned called First Down uh, that Chris mentioned. Who were the first Detroit hip hop group to sign a major label? Yeah, Payday Records. Yeah, and then, then that label went bust. Yeah, after one <laughs> single. That's yeah. brutal, that, yeah. Uh, so after that, fell apart, he then went back to Slum Village and kind of focused on that, and then they released their debut album in 1996 called Fantastic Volume 1. It's actually a pretty cool record, I don't know if you guys have heard it, it's not on, um, there's no complete version of it anyway on Spotify, it's, it's an okay album, you can kind of see where his jazz and soul influence really comes from, the yeah. kind of beginnings of that neo-soul sound that he'd help create later on. Yeah, I've heard bits of it, it's, it's odd hearing the vocals, I'll be honest, getting, mm. given that I got so used to it without. Um, in fact, there's a really cool story for that record um, from Questlove, from The Roots, I don't know if you guys came across it, but yeah. like that album had a huge, huge impact on him, Like he said that the tape never ever left his side um, he actually went out and bought a high, high-end Walkman just so that he could listen to it and he would often walk off stage during the bass solo and root show so he could go and take a sort of fake piss break to listen to it in the toilet <laughs> and and he once thought he once thought about breaking up the roots because Black Thought like took the tape without his permission like that's just how fucking much he loved that drum sound and that drum sound the drum feel was something that he would kind of later go on to try and replicate in the roots yeah it's um, fun watching him pl- Try to play it. I watched some videos of him trying to like physically imitate that sort of the sliding kick beat. You know, keeping the, the mm-hmm. hats, keeping the kicking, uh, keeping the hats in the snare, um, the hands basically nice and locked. But the drift of the kick beats and him trying to imitate that because like, it's so counterintuitive. Your body wants to lock into the rhythm, and you're trying to both push and pull that kick to keep it moving. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's like the guy's such a capable drummer anyway. It's it's great to watch him trying to replicate it. One of the things he said is that he always wanted, like, whenever the roots record, they always kind of strive for perfection, obviously, but they also want to have that kind of messy, organic feel, and, like, J. Dilla was a big example as to why they had they wanted to have that. You so know? you, there's a beautiful turn of phrase there, right? J. Dilla, uh, he, d- he didn't strive for perfection, he strove. Strove? Striven? Strive? Strove. I think strove. Strive. <laughs> Straven? Strove. <laughs> uh, you strive for imperfection uh, yeah. like he really sought not to overly treat his things and you I mean obviously you mentioned that he didn't quantize his beats and for, for all the people that are not familiar with that term it's where you know like the software or the, the device that you're using kind of bumps your your organically placed beats into time it sort of analyzes it and it, you know it it puts them where they kind of should be. It's very, very easily done with software now, but at the time, things like the MPC 3000, uh, the Akai instrument that he was such a master of, that did that as well. But he tried to resist that because it gave it a much more played feel, gave it a much more human touch. And that, for me, is like maybe his standout thing. And that's maybe like a standout thing for me in what I like for music. I think probably my opinion over the last hundred odd episodes is that I absolutely I love that natural organic feel I hate it when drums are too programmed or you know there's uh, it, just when the soul is taken out of things a little bit I say this having said nominated Catch, Catch 33, 33 is the <laughs> ultimate Meshuggah album but like 
<laughs> the entire point of that record was for that. But yeah, in terms of hip hop and stuff like that, yeah, I just love it because what it does, it retains that soul, it retains that idea of just not being quite perfect um and he, d- he does it masterfully it's amazing there's, yeah i mean there's a lot of times throughout his entire throughout all the stuff he's produced or like even done the beats on or whatever particularly his own stuff i suppose is, is kind of mostly where this comes from at least the, the least the, the sort of less electronic stuff because he's got a little bit of electronic bit like sort of in the middle of his career i guess or sort of late to late middle period is that sometimes it's actually so weird that you can't actually tell where his beats begin and the sample ends and vice versa. There's like a lot of overlap. It's really apparent on Donuts and on The Shining as well. Where clearly I think he probably got into a groove of actually knowing where where it was best placed to kind of do that and, and kind of lead with that. Um, but it's a it's a big signature of his. After 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 Storm Village released our first album, he kind of came to the attention of a group called the Uma. Um, which is like a production group featuring Q-Tip and Ali Shahid Mohammed from a tribe called Quest. Yeah, did they not form that rather than him coming to the attention of it? Did they not come together? No, he, he was inducted into it later on after after it started because um, D'Angelo and Raphael Sadiq were also in and out at some points as well. Um, Q-Tip was really impressed when he had the record and when he met him and Jay, Jay gave him that first album and he's like, who did the beast in that? And he's like, that's me. And then he was like, oh shit, well, I guess, I guess we need to work with you then because... That they were like that's that's brilliant. Well, okay, so sorry, we should probably emphasise as well. He he was from Detroit, but where he really came to prominence was in LA, and he moved to mm-hmm. LA and sort of settled there and got a lot of work there, got a lot of kind of kudos there. He seemed to really click with that community, which I think LA is kind of quite infamous for being very receptive to new ideas in hip hop and rap and things like that it's a place where people go to try and break new sounds but in the 90s he'd done remix work for people including like Janet Jackson Della Soul, Busta Rhymes, Farside yep. Tribe Called Quest it, who obviously came to their attention but it was uncredited and it wasn't mm-hmm. until he worked with the UMA that he started being credited under that umbrella yeah I mean there's there's even there's even reports of like um he did all he did like most of the programming and um, for the drums on voodoo by D'Angelo and he's not mentioned in the credits for that record yeah. at all yeah that's um, what I've heard. even even though it's clear that it's his style that's been quite influential on that That, that group kind of spun off into another one called the Soquarians, which, yeah. which was supposed to be like a hip hop super group. They never actually released anything, but it had D'Angelo like, in it as well, didn't it? Yeah, and yeah. Common as well, Taylor Quayle. And they, the um, roots, like, when the he was with Soquarians, he did stuff for Eric Abadu. Yeah, so, like, the Eric Abadu album uh, ended up getting one of the songs got Grammy nominated, didn't you know? Mm-hmm. 
think he was I think he'd done a lot of production on it as well um, but it was kind of it was around about that time the turn of the century when Storm Village released their second album their major label did debut Fantastic Volume 2 did you guys did you guys listen to that? I've only heard snippets of it, man. It's it's brilliant. It's a great, great record. It's a bit long, but like that's him in his groove at that point, and it's him getting really getting to grips with that style. Mm-hmm. Um, like Corant Gardens is a really good song. It's got like an awesome sort of syncopated sort of five bar phrase thing. Something that he was always quite adept at doing. It's a song with D'Angelo on it called Tell Me. Which is brilliant. D'Angelo's vocals, like he's got obviously got that kind of almost falsetto like singing voice which really undercuts or sort of really kind of plays along well with the sort of soul samples that are being used and, and the rapping as well for, for, from all three members of Soul Village and mm-hmm. um, there's a Busta Rhymes song on it as well called What It's All About that's like a proper 80s hip hop vibe which is quite a nice wee throwback but yeah, it's a really good record, man. It's got a nice laid-back feel. Good summer day record. Definitely worth checking out and diving in deeper if you if you if you like some of what you've heard so far. Yeah, I think some of the people that were interviewed in some of the documentaries I was talking about did comment on how good the Slum Village stuff was, and that that also was sort of fairly under acknowledged. Mm-hmm. He left after that record. Um, he produced the two albums after that. But he, he left he left that, that unit. He did a solo album, or he started a solo album for MCA in 2002, though. Is, is that not why he left, or part of why he left? Well, he le- one of the reasons he left is because his production work was, was like getting quite you know quite in demand. But he also he recorded an album called Welcome to Detroit, which was like his first solo record before he signed to MCA in 2002. That's a great record as well. Um, it's, it's very much like the some village record only it's, it's kind of more complete, completely him um, he actually sings in some of the songs as well and it's the first one which is like properly fully him rapping there's a song on it called Think Twice which is just outstanding probably up there with his best work But it was the production work, which is why I left. He actually produced 10 tracks on, like, War for Chocolate, the Common album. Yeah. Um, and there's a song on that called The Light, which is probably in the top 10 Jay Dilla songs. Write this, queen. I ain't seen you in a minute. Wrote this letter and finally decide to send it. Sign, sealed, delivered for us to grow together. Love has no limit. Let's been a slow forever. I know your heart is weathered by what studs did to you. I ain't gonna saw them because I probably did it too. The production on that, the beat on that is absolutely phenomenal. 
one interesting thing about this period is like a lot of people see that as being like the peak of like the kind of neo soul style that he was doing at that time because he started to change his style a little bit soon after that and, and that's when he kind of did the album with MCA the album which was released as the diary in 2016 I don't know if you've heard it but he didn't produce anything on it he just raps on it Mm-hmm. It was produced, it was like Mad Lib, Kanye West, Pete Rock, people like that that produced it Yeah, and as a result it's super uneven I think um, I don't think he's the best rapper I think, um, see when you put him alongside like Snoop Dogg and Nas are on that record, right? And see when you put him alongside them It's like, it's, it's, I think it can be a little bit you can see where his limitations really lie as a, as a as a as an MC, you know. And MCA didn't like that record, and then ended up getting shelved. And then there was a personnel change, which means it never seen the light of day. So he went away. And to what, the, until 2016. Until yeah, until after he died, um, long after he died. Um, so he went, he went to the, an EP called Rough Draft. Can I just um, mention, by the way, we hadn't actually explained that he's dead. I know we've kind of been yeah. talking about it in past tense, but we've not. <laughs> oh, yeah. For, yeah. For, for people that are not aware of this, uh, yeah, Jay, Jay Dilla died uh, at 32. 2006. 32, yeah, 2006, yeah. age of 32. Same age as Bill Hicks. It's like the it's yeah. the it's the next hurdle after 27. You've got the Kurt Cobain, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, 27, Janis Joplin, then you've got the 32, which is like Hicks and so on. Um, and it was three days after the release of Donuts. Yeah, yep. that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he died... Uh, I've got well, a whole bunch of stuff on this man, yeah. It's yeah, just mental. Cardiac arrest really was the, the technical reason for him, but he'd, he'd spent a long time battling a, a condition called TTP, which is like thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Uh, yeah. And he'd also been diagnosed with lupus, which is a, a mm-hmm. blood condition. Coincidentally, lupus, which is treated by hydroxychloroquine, which is mm-hmm. the drug that now lupus sufferers can't get because mm-hmm. so many fucking Trump supporters are hoarding it because of that lunatic pretending that he's taking it so there'll be a lot more people probably dying of lupus unfortunately or lupus related conditions uh, because of that um, but yeah that's, that's ultimately what killed him and it's uh, yeah the, I think I'm sure you'll go into the, the, the circumstances around his death but it's a slow it's, slow way yeah. to die it's pretty sad as to, as to what happened to him mm-hmm. um, but one of the things I wanted to touch on around about this period is when he changed his style is um, so, sorry we're in 2002-ish yeah 2002 yeah so after he finished with Common he did this, the record which ended up not getting released by MCA and he did a, an EP called Rough Draft which is kind of started to move more towards using electronics and stuff you about to get it oh my god And there's a massive reason for this. He actually spoke about it in an interview in 2004. He'd actually grown really tired of hearing gangster rap on the radio, um, and his style was never like that. But you could kind of see a little bit of crossover in what he was doing. You know, that kind of stuff's often called boom bap, hip hop, and it's because like they emphasise like the bo- the boom, the bass drum, and like sort of clear out some space in the mid range for the, the aggressive vocal to really punch through mm-hmm. and you can hear throughout his oeuvre like his mixes have always been very kind of even and quite quite rich and nice 
and he was kind of really sick of hearing that on the radio. He's like, look, I'm sick of doing this. I don't really want to do it anymore. And um, I want to embrace the kind of more jazzy, kind of funk, funky, kind of soulful stuff that I've always been really into. I mean, apparently, like watching interviews with people that were close to him and people that were sort of operating in circles around him, he he was such a creative and, and such a prolific guy that, for example, he would come out with some beat that was maybe. Oh hey, what about this beat that you did four months ago? And he was like, I don't want to know about that man, that's old news And he would have this great stuff that, you know, loads of bands, musicians are still playing tracks that are four, five years old They're still working on stuff that's, you know, four and five years old He just was constantly, like, outgrowing things the whole time Mm. And he's, he, he was growing really tired The sounds really quickly Because he had so many ideas to try and get out um, I think I think that's really interesting man Because I mean There's positives and negatives His evolution was really fast as a result He was moving from sound to sound to sound to sound Much faster than other artists might But then again other artists often take the time To really develop certain things to their full potential Whereas his attention span And his creativity was such that Some stuff just got sort of like Discarded Which had a lot of promise You know And, mm. and other people actually took it I think a lot of the, the musicians around him Went back And sort of dug through some of that work And said this this deserves to be heard And, and started using them for tracks uh, Because they felt it had just been overlooked Yeah I mean But I think a lot of his A lot of the kind of soulful vibes it had did, it, Some of his techniques did evolve You can hear it changing through like You can hear him getting better at certain things Throughout the records and donuts And the, the, the record he was also working on At the same time The Shining Which was also released in t- 2006 Are both really good examples of like the two sides of that coin you know Donuts has that sort of pulsing creativity like everything gets discarded really quickly because obviously the nature of the songs is like here's a good here's an idea but I'm not going to bore you too too long with that idea because I've got like another fucking 28 on this record that I really want you to hear whereas The Shining is made up of tracks which clearly MCs have taken and rapped over fleshed out went into like full full things and mm. a lot of the performances on it from him and from his friends I suppose um, are, are excellent you know um, I often wonder if, if he maybe intended to release them both at rough at maybe as a double album or maybe at the same time and one ended up just getting finished before the other and then he passed away but um, they're really good companions to each other if you listen to them back to back I find but I suppose like before he released that um, he did uh, a record in 2003 called Champion Sound with Madlib um, under the MJLib. Um, that's quite an interesting story as to how that came about. Square tans, I let the bass hit so they wear in. So loud, roll loud. Tint the windows with the hydro cloud. Big trucks, best when it's cold out. Hit me pulling up in front of your house. When I hop in, it gets the job. Madlib got his hands on some J- JD beats. Um, so like like Chris was saying, like his bootleg tapes were just kicking around right, left, and centre. And Madlib, as well as being a producer, um, was also a rapper, and he heard that did a bunch of did a bunch of rapping over a bunch of songs. Then J uh, like heard that, and he's like, he phoned him. He's like, what are you doing? Madlib says, I thought they was really mad at me. And Jalib says, No, let's make it a real thing. So they went out and did Champion Sound. I don't know if you guys listened to that album. 
Yeah, I heard mm-hmm. again, man. I, I just whipped through a lot of his back catalogue, but yeah, I heard bits and bobs of it. Um, it was interesting reading about his relationship with Madlib because apparently they were incredibly tight. Really, mm. really, as guys, they really clicked. You know, he moved to LA, started working with him, and I mean, people said they were backstage with those guys and they would sort of communicate in noises. They were so used to each other's company. Mm-hmm. Um, they like said they were, it was like relatives, it was like your first cousin, you know, it was just, oh yeah. And then the other guy would be like, yep. And it was just mm-hmm. it's sort of nonsensical, but just awareness of each other. Like, it was a, there was a really, really close bond between those two. Which is crazy because they'd only met once before, like, they'd even spoken the phone to talk about their record, you know, and, and, and Madlib had got a hold of his tapes without J, without Jay Dilla even knowing it, you know, so to become that close and that quickly as well because, you know, Champions Sound came in 2003 and he moved to LA in 2004, you know, so that was like a, must have been like a really quick time because they toured together not long after that. It was when it, before he got seriously, seriously ill. And yeah, the record two, two, itself two thousand, is, sorry, just, uh, you're, just uh, for the benefit of the people listening, to give them a kind of chronology. 2004 is the first time that his health started to like crop up in a kind of wider awareness. Uh, he sort of played it down, but there was people definitely started to notice that it was having consequences on his career and his touring and his, you know, his general functioning. Mm-hmm. The champion sound record is quite uneven again. It lacks he lacks in the rapping department for sure, but it does have a few good songs on it. Um, the official is really good. Uh, I like raw shit. Even though like Taylor Quali's like. Rapping on it is pretty perfunctory. Um, everything else is is pretty good from Madlib. Um, and Stars is a lot of fun too. So there's a lot of good songs on it, but most of the good songs on it are Jay's beats, Madlib rapping. They went on tour really briefly after that. And then that's when he came home and, like Chris said, they got really, really ill. Um, can I need to rewind a little bit to kind of explain as to how it got so bad so quickly for him? When he first was diagnosed with TTP, it was in 2002, after he came off tour from some village, he was admitted to hospital because he had like a flu that he couldn't shake. And they did a, a blood test on him and his blood platelet count was down to 10 when it should be like 140. And that's when he was diagnosed with TTP. Yeah, um, you get you develop like small clots and like small veins and arteries in your body. And obviously mm-hmm. small clotting in your body can put strain in your heart and it can also travel up through your circulatory, circulatory system uh, to your brain eventually. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a... It's a dangerous condition so he was on medication obviously for a while then he kept he kept being creative and, and doing stuff he did the jailer record he moved to LA did the tour in Madlib he lived with Common when he was in LA and then in November 2004 he was admitted to hospital because um, he was starting to feel really really ill and his mum actually came over to, to to be with him at that time and he was in hospital from 2004 November 2004 to March 2005 um, and he apparently um, as, as the story goes um, he was racking up a hospital bill of $200,000 per week because he needed dialysis three times a week at 2k a time he had prescriptions which ranged between $700 and $2,000 per bottle and he, he had huge copies because um, he was paying lots and lots of money just to see specialists I think the highest was like $6,700 just for an appointment to see a specialist um, Gotta bless that American healthcare system. Yeah. His mum still receives medical bills almost every day, um, invoices every day for all the stuff, for all, all this. The TTP started to lead to kidney failure and he started his hands and stuff started to start to swell up, so it made it really difficult for him to walk for to work. 
he ended up being really bed bound but they were able to set up a studio in the hospital which is where he was able to create donuts and and the shining and, and work in any other number of things which have since been released and don't get me started on how many fucking compilations of, of beats and stuff like that out there because there's holy shit yeah. so much stuff I know that um, in 2005 in January of 2005 uh, sorry no I beg your pardon in November of 2005 he went on a European tour yeah and I, I believe I heard an interview with someone yeah in a wheelchair and I heard an interview with someone that saw him in London in January uh, I'd assume it would be the tail end of that tour um, it was only about two months before he died and he he was performing in a wheelchair but he lacked the energy to even finish his raps so what was happening was the other guys were filling in for him and they were obviously mm-hmm. like geeing up the crowd and trying to, try to get people to acknowledge really what was going on it, it, the people like, the guy actually that was getting interviewed started crying during it and he was trying to explain that they, they realised about halfway through the show that this was like a, a goodbye this wasn't just he was unwell this was that he was you know terminally ill yeah supposedly it was, it was quite a harrowing thing just watching him trying to soldier through it he gave a couple of speeches to the crowd thanked him and then that was it that was the last time he played uh, yeah and then since his passing what's kind of heartbreaking is the like obviously his incredible legacy musically uh, and culturally in terms of hip hop and beyond in terms of jazz and electronic and stuff like that but at the same time there's been this huge sort of deal in terms of like his estate and there's been Mm -hmm. issues with um, you know the executor of his estate and his his mum and then he left kids uh, who don't receive anything and you know his his children are still on social security because they're paying off medical debts and stuff like that and it's just yeah it's really tragic that a record like this can come out and an artist like this can leave such an incredible musical legacy but then like the real life admin <laughs> is so, so fucking horrible yeah I mean yeah. it also explains why there have been so many posthumous releases as well because they had to try and generate you know as the acts that he worked with as well became successful they had to just do something to try and pay off these bills to try and capitalise on some of the estate but I mean I think it was like three albums before his death but four al- four after in terms of just mm-hmm. albums and then dozens of compilations and EPs um, I'd seen criticism of some of them I know that there was a re-release of Donuts which involved like Ghostface Killer and MF Doom and stuff like that as a box set that was quite mm. heavily criticised because one of the things you'll, you'll hear a lot about in this album is the whole cyclical nature uh, apart from the obvious tie-ins of the title of, but of the, the way the music's arranged we'll get to that but breaking it up into this box set kind of dismantled that whole concept and that was kind of really frowned upon um, so I mean the, 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 the decision to have all these posthumous releases, including, like you said, the diary in 2016, they're sort of they were kind of necessitated by the the incredible burden of debt that the guy's illness left and the American mm-hmm. healthcare system. One thing which I think quite interesting before we move on to the post the post posthumous stuff is that well, long before he died, he was actually making plans to do an album with Bill Smith. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> super bizarre, but you know that could have solved so many problems. Though you know, I mean, if he produced a Will Smith record, that probably would have solved pretty much most of the medical medical bills. <laughs> you know, what's also yeah. interesting is that you hear so many of the huge artists like Drake and Kendrick Lamar and stuff like that talk about him um, about you know his legacy. I mean. They could just wipe out that debt in a moment if they wanted yeah, to. They could. Yeah, yeah. That is, Drake that could just shit out. Um, Fucking Kanye, man. Kanye can 
fucking big him up as much as he wants but Kanye could literally let his family off the hook with the snap of his fingers yeah. but he won't because he's a fucking rat <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think as well Mark before you go into the posthumous stuff without labouring the details too much his time in hospital was long like, it was very protracted he was very weakened but he had he had a few instruments in there with him which I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to mention during the actual discussion of the album but you were talking about his mum caring for him there's a, a little account that comes up in almost every documentary and article about him of his mum massaging his hands to try mm-hmm. and get him some movement because they were so swollen they became so inflamed and um, there's loads of like little touching details of that him getting lifted out of his bed in the middle of the night because of a combination of you know creative uh, impulse and maybe anxiety and needing to refocus his attention because I mean the guy knew it was happening and it became painful like when you when you really start to dig into the, the, the lyrical lyrical inverted comments uh, content of the album you realise just how aware he was of mm-hmm. the, of what was about to happen yeah I mean his mum used to bring him boxes of records in the hospital every day and he would just go through them and say these ones aren't good and she'd go away and come back with more apparently he had thousands of records in his home studio like mm-hmm. all alphabetised so that he could just get access to whatever sample he needed at I any heard, given moment I heard them called uh, I heard them referred to as the, the rain man of hip hop uh, yeah. be- be- because he had uh, like this, this encyclopedic knowledge of the noises that he needed from di- different things I, I know some of the guys he worked with talked about the fact that he would literally conceptualise the song like before he even started to lay it down. So it wasn't like he was feeling his way through it. He would dictate to the engineer who would be struggling to keep up with the Pro Tools setup. He'd be like, right, next bar you're going to drop this. Next bar you're going to cut out that frequency. You're going to bring this back in. Okay, four more bars, do this. I mean, he, he visualised all this stuff. And then when he needed to find samples, he would go rummaging through trying to find... not. Not try to work through records to hear a specific sample, but actually being like, right, we need to find the such and such album by so and so or the forty five because it's got this clap sound on it that I need for this bit. And I, I mean, I'm not massively familiar with creating beats. I mean, I do a wee bit of it with our group, but not not to this extent. He could pull together beats in ten to fifteen minutes, and there have been people that have tried to emulate some of the beats that he pulled together, and it's taken them literally hours. Uh, and mm. you know, the, your average kind of beat maker will take half an hour just to decide on what sample he wants let alone to pull the entire thing together he was incredibly quick incredibly incredibly quick at doing these things and it, it speaks of like a, a much higher ability not just a not just a talented guy but a, a bit of a savant you know hence yeah. the, the rain man of hip-hop so i think it's this kind of important to do justice to just how technically gifted the guy was in, in that respect and even beyond technically like, like artistically concept just working at a completely higher level than so many of his peers totally and i think one thing we've, we haven't really mentioned and i don't want to, i don't want to talk about it too much but Clearly, he was from a jazz background. The, the way that he created music, like his vision, the, mm-hmm. the scope of it was clearly comes from that. And subsequently, his influence has, has been huge. And f- we're talking about earlier, we're talking about Flying Lois, we're talking about Kendrick Lamar, we're talking yeah. about all that kind of stuff, you know. It all kind of comes from, I don't know if it's this album specifically, but it's definitely comes from this artist, for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, him, him and DJ Shadow are just so hugely influential in any kind of alternative take on hip-hop. It's just there's, there's virtually nobody that won't cite at least one, if not both of them. I read a, mm-hmm. a good quote. I can't, it might have been Jeff Parker from Tortoise, but it was certainly somebody said that he's a non-drummer who's influenced jazz drumming more than any, any jazz drummer has <laughs> in the last 15 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 
it is amazing. So some of the post- post- posthumous stuff is, is good and some of it is, well, so much of it, I've not listened to all of it, but the three albums, or the four albums, I suppose, are, are worth mentioning. The Shining, as I've mentioned, is a very good record. I don't know if you guys listen to it, but yeah, it has uh, some standout moments on it. There's a song called So Far To Go, which is just a mighty, mighty tune. absolutely amazing there's a reason it's got 32 million plays on Spotify like far more than any other ones um, it's got Common and D'Angelo on it and they're both amazing uh, it's really kind of dreamy and soulful it's really nice um, Geek Down is brilliant E equals MC squared it's great Baby's very cool it's got a really cool mixture of like bringing in like a really banging soul song and then chopping it up with some awesome beats shit in a major way I beat your dog's ass like flavor flame Niggas with guns beneath leathers You know better, keep your bitch on tether Niggas got snow like cold, cold weather And big money clips cause it It's just a really good sunny day album as well The whole thing's a delight, really um, After that they released J Love Japan Which was originally just released in Japan It's only 20 minutes long, it's kind of more of an EP It's more instrumental It actually kind of, think, think about it It kind of serves as like a bridge between Donuts And The Shining, if you want to think about how it would sit Musically in this chronology and then there's a really, really long record called um, J. Stay Paid, which is like his last <laughs> last selection before the diary was released in 2016. Also got a lot of good tracks on it. Reality Check is brilliant. It's got Black Thought from the roots on it. Um, and it's also got a song with Danny Brown on it called Dillabot vs. The Hybrid, which I fucking love, man. It's like a mixture of gangster rap versus like the usual kind of soul of, of Dilla. It's, it's pretty awesome. There's a Doom, MF Doom on that, I think. Yeah, really that's like. on that as well. Yeah. Um, and then a bunch of compilations, a bunch of EPs, a bunch of just instrumental beats lying around. So much stuff, really, that you can't really cover it all because it's just so hard with an artist of, like... you start. I started off by thinking, oh, he's only got three records, technically six. And then I started to get into it, and I was like, fuck, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's got, <laughs> like really compilations <laughs> and compilations of unreleased beats and mixes and shit, and you're like, oh, holy fuck. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of stuff here. Okay, so I think that just about sort of brings us up to date both chronologically to the record Donuts and also as a good overview of J. Della's career. So join us next week as we talk about Donuts by J. Della. <laughs> <laughs>